Hello, my name is Nick Spacek, and you're listening to From and Inspired by a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with composer Paul Zaza about his work on such films as Popcorn, A Christmas Story, My Bloody Valentine, Prom Night, and more. It's time to turn around, baby Get your feet back on the ground, baby Find out what's going down, baby Yes, it's time to turn around Composer Paul Zaza has scored innumerable classic films, from the holiday feelings of A Christmas Story, the reggae-inflected tones of Popcorn, the country-tinged My Bloody Valentine, and the classic slasher tones of Prom Night, which celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. In recent years, his scores have seen reissue from the likes of 1984 Publishing, Strange Disc, Waxwork Records, and Terrorvision, in many cases bringing these complete scores to a wide audience for the first time. We spoke with the composer about all of this and more earlier this year. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So um, you have composed music for so many films and television shows, but how did you, what was, what was your start in music? Well, my start in music was when I was four years old. So I wouldn't have been scoring too many movies, but uh yeah, I started taking piano lessons at the age of four, four and a half, actually, and uh, went through the whole piano, you know, conservatory uh, process of, you know, scales and arpeggios and learning how to play the piano and learning how to play Bach and Mozart and all those wonderful things. And then I guess once, once I got up into uh, my teens, I started to discover things like rock music and and things outside of Bach and Mozart. And then that's, that's when I sort of, you know, said, well, you know, this is, uh, there's a lot more going on here in the, in the world musically. So I really didn't get into film until my 20s. Um, I had played in bands and I, you know, I got some studio work as a, as a bass player, oddly enough, not, not, not piano, <laughs> which is 
really weird. I still can't figure out how that happened. But um, basically was doing a lot of work as a bass player, electric bass in, in Toronto, Canada. Uh, then uh, I haven't, and while all this was going on, I was building a recording studio, which was always my sort of passion, you know, to, to uh, operate and own a recording studio and be able to record music of all kinds. So it was there that I actually got uh, a fluke. It was, it was a break getting into film because there was some other composer scoring a film in there that I was recording. He had written the score and uh, it was a disaster that didn't work at all. And the producer, or actually it was the director was freaking out saying, I can't, I can't use this on my film. It doesn't work. So, um, I happened to be there and, you know, being young and, and, cocky i said well I, I can fix this I, I can record i know what you want i can do it and he <laughs> in in a little bit of disbelief he he sort of looked at me and he said i don't know what, what do you mean you're just you're the engineer here you you score a film i said okay tell you what let me take a shot at it if you don't like it throw it out you know what have you got to lose at this point not going to cost you anything and if you like it you use it so I did, and he liked it, and that was sort of my in. I ended up scoring four more feature films with him and a whole bunch of other things. So it really was kind of a, uh, I guess you'd say a fluke. <laughs> well, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fluke of really good timing because your beginnings as a composer really coincided with like the rise in what I guess are now known as can exploitation films, those sort of like a uh, tax shelter horror films, uh, and, 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 well, genre films of all, all types really, uh, there in, in the early eighties. Yeah, exactly. It was very timely. Um, there were a lot of these horrible, ter you know, horror films that were being done for tax, uh, shelter you're exactly right i mean that's 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 what kind of launched a lot of people's careers um so you know again i <laughs> i happened to be in the right place at the right time there's no question well speaking of like the 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 film that i think really uh like early on that is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year is prom night, which is a film that also also features, uh, someone who was on their way up at the time, uh, one Jamie Lee Curtis, um, uh, and somebody who might be, you know, it had a lot of genre folks in it and, uh, in, including, uh, yeah, it, uh, in, including Leslie Nielsen, but, um, that film, like, the the soundtrack to that only recently just last year got its first official stateside release was that kind of an exciting thing for you to have that music now uh, uh, available for folks or is it a little embarrassing being as how it's from the beginning of your career <laughs> well it's i'm not embarrassed i think you know i put that soundtrack together for the for the label out in California, and in revisiting it and listening to it, I thought, you know what, it's pretty good considering it was done 
you know, 30 years ago or some odd, you know, whatever it was. And, and it was thrown together on a shoestring budget. And, you know, I didn't have any time. I didn't have any money. And it was really just hacked together. I listened to it when I put the soundtrack together. And I thought, you know what? It's, it still actually holds up. Was that the first time you worked with Carl Zittrer? No. No, I had actually worked with Carl before that film on another one, which still remains my favorite and probably, I think, the best work I've ever done. A film that's not known very much. It's, uh, it was Murder by Decree by uh, same di- uh, Bob, Bob Clark actually wrote and directed it. Had a great cast, Christopher Plummer, James Mason, I mean, an incredible cast, Donald Sutherland. Uh, it was a it was a Sherlock Holmes movie and um, a very classy, you know, piece of work. Uh, didn't make any money and didn't have nearly the fan base that Prom Night has. <laughs> but yet, you know, it's I, I still think is the best work I've ever done. That was the film that I met Carl Zetrer with on and worked with him on, um, and uh, from that we sort of springboarded onto a few other things like Porky's and Prom Night and you know other films that were really all over the map here we're talking about you know (laughs) (laughs) all kinds of genres here Um, but but basically yeah Prom Night was the second film as a matter of fact the reason we got called to do Prom Night was the producer Peter Simpson had seen uh, had watched the, the well, our version of the Academy Awards, which is the Genie Awards in, in Canada for, for best film and, you know, and such. He had been watching the awards show and he saw Carl and I get up to accept the award for best music. So he had, had very, very uh, timely again at that point. He was looking for a composer to do the music for Prom Night. So he called us after he saw the show and he thought, well, these guys won an award. They got to be pretty good. <laughs> and then we went into his office and we made the deal to do prom night. What's, what's interesting about like some of the, the, those early horror movies you worked on, um, like my bloody Valentine and prom night is that they have proper songs, not just score. Like the, the ballad of Harry Warden is, is, is fairly iconic amongst horror fans. And those disco songs from prom night, like, like that was that was the reason people wanted that soundtrack to come out just because like those songs are like they're real disco songs and they're kind of uh bangers for lack of a better term. Uh, they're no, they're real disco songs. There's no question about that. Uh, they were designed to be real disco songs. Um, the the interesting. St- story which i've told a million times but i'll i'll do it quickly is that those six songs actually only five of them made it to the film but they were replacements for five very very big popular hits that were out (laughs) at the time like you know gloria gainers i will survive and uh Oh, BGs, you should be dancing. You know, I mean, there's there were a bunch of very very big songs in the movie that the producer had cut in and had actually shot the scenes to the BGs and and these people, only to find out 
<laughs> when he went to buy the rights, that the the cost of getting the rights for these songs would be like ten times what it cost to make the whole movie. That's I I just watched. Uh, there's a series on Netflix called uh, "The Movies That Made Us," and the episode on Dirty Dancing that is a like a big part of how like up to like literally right before they were starting to shoot all of those big dance sequences, like they didn't have songs locked down and there was a possibility that they were just going to have to record like dancing to a click track, uh, just because of like the huge cost of licensing films, uh, songs for film. Yeah, exactly. And well, you know, you put a bunch of kids in a room you say, all right, we've got a disco scene here. (laughs) You can't play a click track. I mean, you know, these are extras. They're not trained actors. (laughs) So you've got to give them something with a beat and something they can really get into if you want the scene to have any kind of life to it at all, right? So, you know, you don't play a click track. The the problem, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you just want a rhythm like the DJs do it all the time. You take a, you take a drum loop and a beat and you put it on and you have everybody bouncing up and down to it. The problem we encountered was that the camera got in really close and you could see some of the actors mouthing the words i will survive i will survive and they're mouthing the words on camera so (laughs) how do you how do you you know work around that so um what i find really fascinating is that so much of your work as a composer like like I know like a lot of fans know you for horror and like other fans know you for things like a Christmas story or porkies. Um, yeah. yeah. But um, what really seems like uh, the, the through line for your career is that like so much of the work you've done is about uh, for films or television shows that are about like young people. Like, um, like you did the theme for, you did the theme for, Mr. Wizard's World, which like blows my mind. Like that was a show that was very, I guess, very important to me at, at, at growing up. Um, and you did like you did music for the kids of Degrassi Street, which um, I think is this. You're the second person I've talked to who's worked on some iteration of Degrassi just in the last week. I've, I've yeah. uh, the the question I've been asking folks is like if you are a Canadian in involved in the entertainment industry. Is there like some sort of overarching contract where you're like required to work on some iteration of Degrassi or uh, like corner gas? No, no, (laughs) there's nothing like that. It's just like everything in this crazy business. It's who, you know, you know, it's contacts, directors, producers make, connections they have relationships with composers that's what gets you in or out of the door <laughs> sometimes the, the you know you have uh, disagreements and then that's that's it but basically i've always found that it's the relationship you have with the producer or the director that will make it work not you know that there's some kind of a God-given right being a Canadian that you will get something. No, I mean, it's worse now than it ever was. But at the time, you know, you would knock on doors and you'd say, look, I'm a composer, I'm a Canadian, uh, please hire me. (laughs) And if they they didn't know you, 
they just said, you know, leave your resume and don't call us, we'll call you. You know, that whole routine. Is it is it is it kind of interesting like to to think that you've done like so much uh like youth oriented stuff like um you've done all the films in the prom night series and um yeah uh like kids of Degrassi Street and uh a Christmas story and all of that uh, even a meatballs film um like is is there something about like that youthful energy not really. Uh, it's you know, a film is a film, and whether whatever audience it was skewed to to play or or, or was designed to to be marketed to, um, the the challenge or the, I guess the real art for film composing in my mind is to be able to look at the scenes, look at what the film is supposed to do, and have the music support and reinforce and sell that film. Whatever it's trying to do, you've got to help it. You've got to move it forward. It's not about the music in the film. It's about the story and the acting. The music is just something that's there to back it up and to strengthen it. And I think a lot of a lot of composers where they've made their mistakes, where they thought, well, no, people are coming in. They're buying the ticket to come in and hear my score. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're, they're buying the ticket because they want to see... Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and they want to see, you know, somebody get stabbed with an ice pick in their forehead. That's why they're buying the ticket. They don't even know half the time who the composer is, and they don't care. To that end, is it really interesting to you that, like, several of your scores have seen, like, these deluxe, like, vinyl reissues over the last few years, like... um my Bloody Valentine from Waxwork Records, Prom Night from 1984 Publishing, uh, and uh, I, I, I have to mention this, uh, Popcorn from Strange Desk, because I am sitting literally underneath a theatrical poster for Popcorn right now. <laughs> Where did you get that? On eBay for $20. Yeah, that was a, a very strange project. But anyway, um, you, you know... I, <laughs> I don't know what to say, really. It's um, these these films seem to have an afterlife, and the interesting thing about it, with the exception of maybe a half a dozen films, you know, like Prom Night and and Porky's and Christmas. Well, actually, Christmas Story is a great example. When that film was made and released, it was yanked out of the theaters like in three days. Nobody wanted to see it. Nobody came to the theaters. The theater owners were begging MGM to pull it. They said, we're dying here. Nobody cares about a little boy who wants a BB gun for Christmas. It's just not, it's not going to sell. It's not working. So the film was yanked and it sat almost like a corpse for maybe 20 years. Nobody knew about it. Nobody cared about it. Nobody ever heard of it. And then a strange thing happened. It just started to get played on Christmas time because, as you probably can imagine, there's a very limited number of films that, that you can play on, especially when you got about 10,000 channels now on your TV set. There's not that many Christmas films out there, you know? And Chevy Chase has, has a couple, I think there's one or two, and there's a couple of, couple of classics, but there certainly isn't enough to fill up all the airwaves at that at Christmas, which we just went through that period. So 
somebody, I guess, discovered it. That was TNT, Turner uh, Broadcasting, discovered this film and started to play it like 24 hours straight. Around <laughs> the and weird things. People were saying, hey, this, this is fantastic. Why didn't I hear about this? And a lot of them thought, well, this film was just made. Right. <laughs> and the fact is, the film was very old. The film was made like I think we did. We did that right after. Maybe we did it after Porky's. No, no, it was before Porky's. It was after prom night. So you, you get a sense of it's definitely like 30 some odd years old. Yeah. But it didn't really get popular until the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I remember, like, I hadn't ever heard of it. And I think. Like I first heard of it when I was twelve, so that would have been like nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. Like when I think it it showed up on video, and then that began began its sort of like slow ascent into being like everyone knows that movie now. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Like it it, uh, it came out on video, and there were, you could buy it for a dollar ninety nine at you know Walmart <laughs> in, the, in the in the bargain bin. But but that's not why it got popular. Nobody buys those things and discovers anything in the bargain bin at Walmart. Where where I think it happened was it it started getting this airplay on on cable. Oh like, yeah, you know TNT I think is the one that, that did it, and that's where the momentum started. We started getting calls. You know, well this music is fantastic, and you know have a soundtrack, and and then they the the guy from San Diego actually bought the house in Cleveland where the movie was shot and turned it into a museum. So it's now a Christmas story museum in Cleveland, Ohio. And so, you know, you got, you got, and people, I went to one of these little, I guess it was a reunion they had out there and there were thousands of people going through <laughs> this house and they all knew all the lines of dialogue and, you know, I double dog Darian, you'll shoot your eye out and all this stuff that's in the movie. And, these these fans were like they were nuts. They were buying up little leg lamps and you know, all this <laughs> stuff, <laughs> and buying our CDs. We had like you know soundtrack albums for sale, and they we sold out. You know they bought them all up, and I said, dude, strangest things too, like merchandising. You know, Scrabble games for Christmas Story, and little earrings that look like leg lamps, and like like the, the craziest stuff you can imagine. It, this thing really started to take off, and it's on a sad note. This all kind of happened after the the mind behind this, Bob Clark, had had been tragically killed in a car accident. Yeah. So he isn't around to see any of this. But that's you know that's just uh, a very unfortunate thing. It is in. In terms of like we've spent all this time talking about um, what you've done in the past, what are you working on now? Well, oddly enough, I'm really spending more time now doing soundtrack albums, which uh, you probably know the the rage now is vinyl. I don't know if for oh, some yeah. reason it's come back. It was dead for 20, 25 years, and now vinyl is the big rage, and I'm getting a lot of calls to do soundtracks releases on vinyl companies like waxwork and you mentioned uh, terror vision and uh, per, what's the one out in la uh, uh perseverance yes. records perseverance 
yeah, there's there's that 1984. There's oh, there's there's just so many of them. The guy in Rochester who did the prop popcorn, and and quite a few European labels now who are asking for product, and you know they're paying good money to 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 acquire the rights for these things, because it seems to me that's where the where the aftermarket is now for. Uh, for these scores, the new movies that are out now, I'm not involved with too many of them because it seems like you're either doing the next Spider-Man <laughs> or you're doing some little video you know, movie that somebody shot with their iPhone and, and it looks <laughs> like it, right? There's nothing in between anymore. Like we don't have another Ken Oxbogtation era, like whatever the word is that you used in the 80s there, the, there's no mid-ground filmmaking anymore you're either making the big blockbusters for disney or you're making the these horrible little you know yeah. <laughs> movies with 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 your camcorder that uh never see the light of day uh, and i don't see anything in between I wish you the, the, I, I look forward to seeing like what other soundtracks you have coming, coming out, uh, as re-releases. And I really thank you for your time talking to me this afternoon. This has been really delightful. Well, and for me too, thank you for taking the time and the effort to do this, Nicholas. I appreciate it. On a sad valentine In a place known as Hanegar Mine A legend began Every woman and man Would always remember the time And those who remained Were never the same You could see the fear in their eyes Once every year As the 14th draws near There's a hush all over the town Oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Thanks to Paul Zaza for speaking with me. You can find the composer online at paulzaza.com. That's P-A-U-L-Z-A-Z-A.com. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on this show in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at fromaninspiredpod, and can be found on Instagram at fromaninspiredby. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons. Please set up the website and click on the Aid and Assistance button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees, and remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking about the excellent Vinyl Detective series of novels with their author, Andrew Cartmel. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.